Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. Big political news this week. President Biden and Vladimir Putin had their much-anticipated summit on Wednesday, and both walked away saying that the meeting was positive and constructive. President Biden said he pressed Putin on recent cyber attacks and human rights issues. They did agree on their ambassadors to return to their posts, begin strategic stability talks on nuclear arms, and consultations on cybersecurity issues. For more of the big takeaways, we'll speak to Nahal Tusi, foreign affairs correspondent at Politico. The gist of it was that they kind of agreed to keep talking. And given that the Russian-U.S. relationship is in such a bad situation and on a downward trajectory, simply the fact that they, first of all, talked and be agreed to keep talking on certain things is considered something of a win. In terms of what emerged, um, I would say two things. One uh, was this agreement to continue discussions on what they use the term strategic stability. That usually refers to like nuclear arms issues. So there's going to be continued discussions on that. And that's a good thing for people who want the earth to continue to exist, I guess. (laughs) Um, and And then the other thing was, you know, that Biden that he made it very clear to Putin that there have to be some limits on these cyber attacks, especially when it comes to critical infrastructure like water systems, that sort of thing. Um, and he he made it sound like he, you know, got that across to Putin and that he hopes that at some point down the line, there can be some sort of a cybersecurity arrangement of sorts that, you know, deals with this particular issue. And to be clear, it, it often involves criminals that don't have anything to do with the Kremlin. You know, um, it's but it's more about making sure that Russia will hold people accountable uh, for those types of activities, even if it's not directed by the Kremlin. And obviously, you know, we don't want the Kremlin to carry out those activities. And I think the right. U.S. Uh, Biden made it very clear that as he put it, like the U.S. has some serious cyber capabilities. Would you like it if we do that to you? So those are, I would say, right. two things. And then they're going to talk about a bunch of other stuff from Afghanistan to Syria to whatever. But he, he himself, Biden, admitted that it would be months before we knew if, if anything seriously concrete was going to result from that. President Biden gave Putin a list of 16 entities that were critical to U.S. infrastructure that he said should be off limits. And Putin, for his part, did say, you know, we, we want to start some uh, consultations on the cybersecurity issue, not necessarily something that President Biden said, but it, it did seem like, I guess, the message came across, but he, he never uh, accepted responsibility for it anyway. I mean, he uh, believed that they should be faulted for some of these cyber attacks that were going through. Yeah, in fact, Putin claimed without any evidence that most cyber attacks come from the United States, right. uh, that this is where all the criminals are based. I mean, look, it, it's, you know, he is never going to, stand out there and say, oh, yeah, we did something wrong or we're responsible. I mean, that is just not how Vladimir Putin stays in power. That is not how he controls the narrative for his own domestic constituency. But, you know, that's that's just but that doesn't mean that they won't work on certain fronts, especially if the U.S. makes it very, very clear, as Biden tried to do, that it's in their interest to work with on some sort of an arrangement on this. And it's it's part of the problem, to be honest, when it comes to the cyber stuff is so much of it is classified and behind the scenes and not to mention highly technical, that it's really hard to tell when there is actually progress or not, because oftentimes 
they just can't talk about it, especially in Washington. So it's one of those things that's going to be hard to monitor. This summit was a, a far cry from the last one that happened between former President Trump and Helsinki. Putin, for his part, said that uh, President Biden was a balanced professional man. He's clearly a very experienced politician. President Biden was fielding questions whether he could trust Vladimir Putin. He said, you know, it's not about trust. It's about our country's self-interest. You know, I'm, I told him what what America needs out of uh, our ongoing relationship. Yeah, I mean, look, this is normal, you know, foreign policy is like every country has its own interests and you're trying to advance your country's interests. And so Biden has a very realistic point of view on that. And Putin said something similar about like, this is our national interest, that sort of thing. Although, you know, when it comes to Putin, people will argue it's his self-interest he cares um, more about than the Russian uh, population as a whole. Um but, you know, the way Biden also kind of spun it, and I, I found this super interesting, was um, it was sort of like, wow, you know, nice country you got there. It would be a shame if anything happened to it. <laughs> right. right. And, but, but, you know, but it was it was this way of doing it. He was like, look, I was telling Putin, like, wow, how would you feel if criminals attacked your energy pipelines? You know, or how would uh, how like if you want to have more trade uh, between Russia and other countries, maybe you shouldn't keep imprisoning American businessmen. You know, it was this whole idea of like, kind of help me help you. Um, but, you know, you could also see it as a veiled threat. So, right, exactly. <laughs> um, so, he, so that was kind of how Biden tried to spin it. And, you know, I mean, Putin's an old hand at this stuff, and it's hard to say um, if, if he fell for that. You know, but it, if, if Biden does through sanctions, other means, if he feels like talks aren't going to work, if he uses these other things and really, really imposes a cost on Putin and his and the people around him, the oligarchs in particular, then it could start to hurt and Putin could start to make some moves. There was a tense moment during his press conference. They had solo press conferences where he got a, a little combative with a reporter. He later on, before getting on the plane, he actually came back and said, sorry for being a wise guy and, and apologized for it. Something we hadn't seen in a long time. So overall, how did he fare throughout this? Well, you know, his assessment was, quote, I did what I needed to do. So he seemed quite confident in how he did. You know, it's, it's never a good idea to get into a fight with the White House press corps, even if the question being asked is really, really frustrating to you. Biden, you know, the, the reporter asked, why are you so confident that, that Putin will change his behavior? And Biden was kind of like exasperated. He was like, I never said that. And he didn't ever said that. He never said he thinks Putin's going to do anything. So he was just kind of frustrated, I think, at the end and got into that. Then he did apologize, which you're right. We haven't seen that in a long time, given the Trump years. But overall, again, he seemed quite happy in how he did. But let's not forget, they set the bar pretty low on this. They right. warned us in advance, don't expect any major agreements, whatever. And they met that very low bar. Nahal Tusi, foreign affairs correspondent at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. This week, we also saw a new study done by the National Institutes of Health showing that in five states, some people were infected with COVID-19 before those states officially recorded their first cases. Blood samples collected between January and March of 2020 were tested for antibodies. Out of 24,000 samples, nine came back positive. And while these cases were earlier than previously recorded, it doesn't show that there was much community spread at the time. For more on this, we'll speak to Betsy McKay, senior writer at The Wall Street Journal. So the NIH has a, a big research program that you and listeners may have heard of called the All of Us Research Program. And it's 
goal is to enroll a million people across the country of diverse backgrounds and through the database that they built in that to study risk factors for disease and treatments and so forth. They're building this big database of blood samples and, and so forth from people, volunteers who enroll. So what they decided to do is use the blood samples that they have collected so far to look at this kind of growing question of interest. You know, how early did the pandemic reach U.S. shores? When, when did people first start getting sick? Because we know the first person to be, you know, formally diagnosed was in late January, around January 19th. But that was right after a test became available. So the CDC, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, develops a test. It's made, you know, available in its lab. And boom, two days later, someone has this. So that raises the question of, well, are they really the first person or not? So these researchers went through and tested blood samples going back to the beginning of January. Out of 24,000, a little over 24,000 participants, they found evidence of infection in just nine people. That suggests a, a number of different things. What they did find, though, also is that in five states, Illinois, Massachusetts, Mississippi, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, they had people that showed evidence of infection. And that was all before, you know, anybody had gotten in those first states, big areas like California and New York. There were no infections that turned up, at least in in these blood samples. What they found was that people, you know, they, they looked at blood samples going back into early January. And what they were looking for was antibodies in the blood. These are blood samples that were taken at the time, and then they're frozen and stored for research later. So the researchers go back, they test the blood for antibodies using two different tests to make sure that it really is the COVID-19 virus called SARS-CoV-2 and not something else. So they found, you know, one person on January 7th, one person on January 8th, and that the antibodies they found normally start to appear about two weeks after someone is infected. So that means those two people one in Illinois and one in Massachusetts were likely infected around December, December 24th or maybe a little bit earlier. Then they went later in time through March and, you know, 24,000 samples, as you said, they only found nine cases. So what that shows is that certainly the virus was here earlier than we knew before. And a couple of studies have shown that now, but it wasn't, you know, not in large numbers. I mean, these were kind of like sporadic cases. And that happens often with infectious diseases, you know, something that causes an outbreak. There's a few cases here, a case here, a case there. And then eventually something takes hold and it starts to spread. But until then, there are these cases that are missed. One of the limitations in the study and something that they wanted to look back into a little bit more was that they don't really show... Uh, travel history for these people, these nine people that did have those infections. So I think they wanted to dig in a little bit more to see if they had traveled to China or contact with anybody from there around that time also. There's very little actually known about these people and how they might have gotten infected. What this means is looking back to that period, if you had some symptoms, the chances are that no, you didn't have COVID. But these aren't the only nine people, right? I mean, they may have spread it to one or two other people. There are other people who may have had this and, you know, weren't involved in this study. But it wasn't in such large numbers that it would have been noticed, you know, that a hospital would have started noticing they were getting a lot of patients with the same strange uh, symptoms. Sorry. So it just wasn't big enough at the time. Yeah. And so we got this new data that I know you mentioned in the article. There was another study that had similar results 
in just showing that obviously we didn't have the COVID test ready to go when we started seeing the first inklings of it. Um, so it was kind of expected that we were going to see some of these other infections floating around earlier than some of these first confirmed cases. When the test first became available in January, because there wasn't, uh, there weren't a lot of tests and there weren't a lot of labs that could do it, and then later, because there was a problem with the test, the public health authorities focused testing on people who had been to China or another country where there was COVID-19 spreading. So you and others may remember this, people who, you know, in February of 2020, thought they had COVID-like symptoms, but they hadn't traveled anywhere and they, you know, hadn't had contact with anyone who was known to have COVID-19, literally couldn't get a test. Now what we know is there were other people. You didn't have to travel to China and there were people who weren't terribly ill. So the point, or one of the points here is that is the importance of having a test that's widely available and not restricting your criteria for the test. That anybody with symptoms or who may have had contact should be able to get a test rather than limiting it to somebody who was in a place where the disease was spreading. Betsy McKay, senior writer at the Wall Street Journal, thank you very much for joining us. It's good to be with you. Thank you. Even as more parts of the country continue to fully reopen from the pandemic, you're still going to see what many are calling hygiene theater. Think plexiglass dividers, scanning QR codes for menus, and the constant cleaning of surfaces, despite surface contact not being a significant transmitter of the virus. These actions have much more to do with making customers feel better than it does with science. For more on how long hygiene theater may last, we'll speak to Mark Fisher, senior editor at The Washington Post. What we're seeing is that in some places, we are moving back toward normal. In other places, businesses, uh, public facilities, entertainment venues, all kinds of places like that are kind of caught in the middle because on the one hand, they want to open up. They want to give people a feeling of normalcy. On the other hand, they know that some of their customers are still very nervous about going out. They don't want to think they won't be safe. And so a lot of adopting precautions that really aren't scientifically merited. So you talked about things that uh, that bars against touching things, Uh, you know, this sort of heavy disinfecting of surfaces that we saw in the early months of the lockdown. There are transit systems and theaters and uh, other public facilities that are still doing that, even though they know that the virus is not transmitted by touch. So why are they still doing it? Well, there are two big reasons. One is they're doing it to make their customers feel more comfortable. And the other is they're doing it to save money. They're doing some of these things to save money. So they're for example, at restaurants, it's hard at some restaurants to get a printed menu anymore. You have to aim your camera and on the phone and, and pull up the QR code and pull up a digital menu. Well, that was initially done to make people feel more comfortable and to stop the spread. But now that's no longer valid scientifically. It's often being done to save money. Right. And the question comes now, what will stick? What's going to stay with us after things fully reopen? And you were talking to some people about all of this. And one of the big pushes for getting vaccinated was everything is going to go back to normal. Right. But with these things persisting, it tends to degrade that customer experience. You know, you can't move around as freely as you wanted to before. You still have plexiglass up and everything. So I I kind of agree in that sense that it's still all these barriers are kind of off putting. But a lot of it, as you mentioned, has to do with psychology. It makes customers feel more comfortable. It puts 
business owners in a really tough spot because on the one hand, they don't want to alienate their customers who just want to feel more comfortable, feel safer. And so they want to keep up some of those precautions to, to communicate the sense that the business is taking this very seriously. I talked to some business owners who said, well, we're keeping the temperature checks uh, because it gives people that feeling of comfort. I think eventually much of this goes away, but there's a really cautionary tale in the aftermath of 9-11. And if you think about all the things that have become a permanent part of the landscape, from showing an ID card in the lobby of an office building to some of the restrictions at airports, a lot of these precautions, once they're put in place, it's awfully hard to take them away. You mentioned the article, too, that a lot of Americans that want this kind of clear rules about how things are going to go forward, but there'll probably be a little more disappointment in the coming months as the reopenings are so uneven. Everybody's kind of all over the place. And, you know, obviously businesses for themselves, they don't want to get caught in something and, and you know, an outbreak happen and then they're held liable. So there's going to be a lot of this kind of one rule set, maybe taking it back, this jockeying back and forth is going to happen for a few months at least. I think that's right. And and uh, probably at least through next winter, we're going to see uh, the same kind of back and forth that we just saw, for example, from Southwest Airlines, where first they said they were going to resume serving alcohol on their flights. And then just days later, they scrapped that plan because they saw how, uh, how poorly some passengers were behaving in the air these days. So there's going to be a back and forth. We're seeing it in hotels. We're seeing it in transit systems. And I think uh, one of the main places we'll be seeing it is in entertainment venues, in bars and restaurants, in concert halls, movie theaters. Uh, They really are caught. They don't know exactly what they can safely let go of. And yet I hear from a lot of people that they're just ticked off by some of these restrictions. For example, at Nationals Park, the baseball stadium here in D.C., they put in these touchless dispensers for the condiments, replacing the old bins where you could kind of reach in and get a spoonful of onions to put on your hot dog. They replaced that with these machines that put down a huge plop of ketchup or mustard when you waved (laughs) your hand under it. And fans went crazy. They said they they didn't know how to operate it. And it was ruining their hot dogs because it was too much stuff coming out of the machine. And so um, finally, the team said, "Okay, forget it. We won't do the touchless thing anymore. So there's going to be a lot of back and forth. You know, it's up to uh, I mean, in all of these cases, it's our local public health experts who are making these decisions without some type of uh, big national rule or something, it really is going to be down to being done at the local level. And even at the individual business level, I I talked to some folks from the National Restaurant Association, and they're telling their members, hey, you can go back to printed menus. You don't have to do the temperature checks. And yet many of their members are deciding to kind of violate that recommendation and go ahead and continue to have those restrictions uh, in part sometimes because they don't have the staff that they had before the pandemic. And so they don't have somebody who can rewrite the menus and print them out and they don't want to pay for that. So it's going to be a mix of motives here where it's not just about safety. It's not just about curbing the spread of the virus. It's also about what these individual businesses that have been hit so hard can afford going forward. Mark Fisher, senior editor at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.